we're all very smart. We're all very talented and we can do a lot of things. And so we try to do absolutely everything. And it's like in time, do all the things for sure. Let's just not do them all at once. Welcome to the Veterinary Financial Podcast, where we discuss financial freedom and whole life success. I'm Meredith Jones, a veterinarian in Virginia. And I'm Willie Bidot, a lab animal specialist in California. We are gearing up for the Virtual Veterinary Financial Summit coming up on September 30th and October 1st. Go to vetfinancialsummit.com to learn more. Our guest today is Mike Bug. Mike is a good friend of the Veterinary Financial Summit. He lives in Canada. He's a veterinarian, a real estate investor, co-host of the Veterinary Project podcast, and now a book author. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks, Verda. Thanks, Willie. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So let's just dive right in because I'm excited for you. Tell us about your new book. Yeah, thanks. So yeah, the new book, uh, obviously, it's for veterinarians. It's called You're Gonna Get Peed On, How Veterinarians Can Keep Their Dream Career from Turning into a Nightmare While Working Less and Earning More. I mean, the book, it's something I always wanted to do. I've always wanted to write a book. And I kind of looked at it, you know, I don't want to die with that regret. So dove in several years ago, I'm kind of a bit embarrassed to say it took me about three years to get this thing published. But I worked in clinical practice for 10 plus years. So I graduated in 2008. And the outline of the book roughly follows the challenges that a new grad would experience. So you start off, you know, maybe perfectionism, imposter syndrome, add in some decision fatigue, empathy fatigue, then identity issues. And it ends going into, you know, personal finance and investing, which, as you know, is a huge, huge passion area of mine. So I kind of tried to layer the chapters roughly in order of how you may experience them as a new grad. And really what I was trying to do with the book is when I graduated, you know, we're very well equipped with medicine and surgery knowledge and we're ready to go tackle all the cases. I felt very unprepared for everything else. Right. And that's what this book really is about is trying to give that new generation of grads over a course of 10 years, lots of personal development, lots of mistakes. These are some of the things I learned. Package it up, try to make it sound okay in a book. And here it is. So I'm excited to unleash it on the veterinary world. All right. And so was there an event that happened in your life or something specific that kind of sparked your decision to write a book? Well, I always wanted to, as I said, the decision to do it was right when COVID hit and, you know, the world shut down. I was looking at my calendar and all the coffee meetings just disappeared. All the in-person meetings disappeared. I mean, I know COVID was horrible in lots of ways, but for a period of time, I was like, this is awesome. Like I got so much time back, right? I didn't realize how much time I was going to meetings. And I was like, I'm never going to have this open of a calendar in the foreseeable future. And up on my wall, my whole wall is a whiteboard with like my big ticket things. And there it is, write a book. And I was like, if not now, then when? So I dove in. That's when I made the decision. So I went from wanting to write a book to I'm committing to writing a book sort of in that moment. And then the catalyst in writing it is, as I mentioned, all the things I experienced. There was one event when I was working out just on the rower and I kind of fell off at the end of a hard workout. This was the catalyst for both the podcast and the book. And I was laying there reflecting on a lot of conversations I have with veterinarians. And when you're in it, you can feel like you're alone, right? You can feel like, man, I'm feeling this way and no one else is. 
And then you start talking to other people and it's like, holy crap, everyone is feeling this way. Like everyone. And I just kind of felt inspired and compelled that like I have to share these stories with the world. Awesome. I'm a little bit jealous because you said you graduated from vet school and you were ready for the whole medicine thing. And I'm like, oh, that didn't happen to me. And then, you know, you started focusing on other aspects like finances. It took me like four years after I graduated to start looking into my finances. So I'm pretty jealous. <laughs> well, I don't want to oversell it. Like, I mean, there's a huge learning curve when you graduate. So I was very fortunate. I had phenomenal mentorship. I'll even say life mentorship, but especially like the medicine, the surgery. And so I really didn't start on my financial journey probably till two years after I graduated because that first two years is just like, wow, like you're drinking from a fire hose trying to stay up to speed as a veterinarian. So I don't want to oversell it. So you're not far behind, Willie. So yeah, with that said, you know, you like to talk about the mindset around money. What beliefs do you think might be holding veterinarians back financially? This is a good question. This is a really deep topic. And I mean, this is why I really love what you guys are doing, because I think it's so important to have money conversations. Because step one, I think there needs to be an awareness. Money can be for some people still like a taboo topic. So they don't talk about it very much, right? And unfortunately, what my experience was in the veterinary clinic, the money conversations generally weren't positive. You know, we take a bunch of veterinarians, we have a lot of debt coming out of school. We take clients coming in, they're fairly stressed out and emotional. And money has that effect. When you and I are talking about money, we're not just talking about today's present day. We're both bringing all of our lifetime of money, you know, like emotional baggage, maybe even trauma around money to that conversation. So, some of the common ones for me, and maybe that I saw, you know, in other veterinarians, the number one that I talk about is, you have to work hard to earn money. And this is speaking of me personally, that was probably my number one money mindset that was not serving me. Now, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with hard work. But I got to a point where I was like, if I'm literally not dripping in sweat, physically exhausted, emotionally exhausted, like just emptied out, then I haven't worked hard enough to deserve being compensated right? And inevitably what that is, is that's a story of you have to trade time for money. And I had to work really hard and full disclosure, I still struggle with this one because I would feel a lot of guilt or a lot of shame if I charge for something that wasn't very hard. You know, and you fast forward in your veterinary career, you know, you're five years out, you're 10 years out. To be completely honest, there's a lot of stuff that comes through the door that's no longer hard because you have a decade of experience doing it. You've done a ton of repetition. So I would feel bad, right? You know, take whatever case we want, take the block cat that comes in and you can diagnose it in 15 seconds once you get your hand on the abdomen and you know the treatment plan because you've done it a thousand times. Then you get in your head and you're like, well, that wasn't hard. So I have to discount that exam, right? And I had to flip from changing that. It's like, well, no, it's okay to charge for the value that you're creating or the value you're providing, right? And not discounting it just because it wasn't hard. So that's one that I see. The other one is some version of, you know, people that have money or want money aren't good people, right? There will be some sort of linking of a person's, you know, bank account to how good of a person they are. And if that number gets too high, you're not a good person, 
right? And obviously these are massive generalizations. I'm not pointing the finger at everyone listening and saying, this is how you think. I would just invite you to explore that. And I'm also saying that's how I thought for a period of time. And I had to kind of rewire some of that. I love that answer. Whenever people say things like what you just said, I always think, man, I, I call my accountant to ask him a question. Those 15 minutes are charged. So I don't know why I can charge for my time in consultations. Yeah, it's a tough one. And we're notorious for it, right? Like notorious. I mean, sometimes we could even get into boundaries and like, we've all been cornered in the grocery store for the unofficial free consultation, right? And it's just this weird thing. The public sometimes expects it from us and we give it and around and around we go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it's true that we all have those sort of money scripts. You know, we all have things that we either tell ourselves or that we've heard enough and it resonated with us or we grew up with money being talked about a certain way and have these beliefs that are hard to shake, you know? Yeah. And unfortunately, lots of the times they aren't serving us, you know, and we've just accepted them. And a lot of decision making, a lot of our life is happening unconsciously, right? And so a lot of our money decisions, our money beliefs are also happening unconsciously. So that's why I opened with saying I'm such a fan of what you guys are doing. Because step one is like an awareness, like we have to just get conscious and really think about like, okay, I just had that thought go through my head about like, I'm not worthy of charging that. And it's like, is that serving me or not? Do I accept that or not? Why or why not? And like, we can question that, right? The little voice in our head that we've had since we were six years old, eventually we can grow up and say, okay, time for you to get lost, right? Like we're moving on. There's a new voice in town. Yeah. And in the veterinary industry, certainly there are a lot of new things going on and there are a lot of things that are in flux right now. And so this is a broad question and you can kind of take it any direction you'd like. What are your thoughts on the state of the veterinary industry right now? Yeah. I mean, obviously, as you said, there's certainly challenges. If I was to cut to the chase, I would say we're all right in here, right? This is still a wonderful profession. It's still full of amazing people. There's a lot of people doing a lot of great things. If we zoom out, not just even looking at the veterinary profession, just look at the world, other healthcare providers, other professions, it does feel a little bit heavy right now. Like there's a lot of stuff going on in the world. A lot of people are struggling. A lot of people are struggling financially. So I'm not trying to discount that there can be a heaviness in the air. But when we really look at it, I mean, I am not in panic mode, right? I'm not like, oh, this is the end of the veterinary profession. It's burning to the ground at all. I think there are so many opportunities in front of us. One of the big things that I see is across the board, we're just feeling overwhelmed. Like people are piling too much stuff on their plate. And I mean, there's a host of factors that go into this. And this isn't just veterinary specific, but take a family similar to mine. So you know, there's two partners, there's maybe there's kids involved. Everyone's working more than full time, like 40 hours a week is like almost a light week now, like people are working 50, 60 hours. If you have kids, they're in everything four days a week, right? You're expected to volunteer at a whole bunch of other stuff. You got to contribute in a bunch of other ways. All these things are very good. I'm not trying to say they're not. I'm just saying like the world, there's so much piled on everyone. And I really think the answer is almost in doing less. The problem in the veterinary industry is we're all very smart. We're all very talented and we can do a lot of things. 
And so we try to do absolutely everything. And it's like in time, do all the things for sure. Let's just not do them all at once. Right. And it's like we're waiting for permission for someone to just say, hey, it's okay to take a day off. You can even take a week off. Right. But it's just like Mm -hmm. we feel like we can't right now. So anyway, I'm kind of rambling. My message is we're okay. We just have to, you know, calm down and keep it simple. Right. There's a lot of joy that can be found in that simplification. Like when I speak to veterinarians, a lot of them truly love what they do. Like they love connecting with their clients. They love their patients. What they don't like is that's being crammed into a 15 minute appointment block and there's two more waiting behind it. So they got to get cracking. Mm -hmm. If they actually got the time to just have a conversation with their client, they would find the joy again in their profession. Yeah, absolutely. I certainly agree. Coming from a ER background, you know, it's not the actual work. You know, it was never seeing the patients, talking to the clients, any of that stuff. It was the fact that six more might be waiting and you might run out of time and there might be a patient who isn't served as well as they should be because there are so many cases coming in at once. And then, of course, there's also those things that are outside of our control, you know, management components and that sort of thing. I had an interesting coffee with a human medical doctor that works in the ER field. So very similar, just humans instead of pets. And they were interested in real estate. They have a little bit of a real estate portfolio. And one of the things I often talk with people about is, okay, like, what do you want your life or your real estate portfolio to look like in 10 years? You know, and they say some variation of what they had planned. And I asked her, I said, like, okay, if this went perfectly and we achieved everything 10 years from now, you know, you're financially free or whatever label we want to put on it. What would you do with your time? And she said, she's like, I would do exactly what I'm doing right now. I would just do less of it because she said she just lights up at the thought of helping little kids in need. Like she loves it. She's just burnt out because she does it, you know, 80 hours a week, week after week. And it's Mm -hmm. such a common story. Like, it's like the answer is right in front of us, you know, like, okay, well, let's just like do a little bit less and find the joy. Yep. (laughs) I have a nonprofit and I hear that a lot. A lot of people would tell me, I wish that this nonprofit work will pay off because otherwise I would just leave my job. And again, it's going back to, you need to figure out how to make money on another way, which is you're clearly a real estate investor at season one, actually. How do you make the transition from practicing in the clinic full time to real estate and why real estate? Yeah, I can tell you how I did it. It's going to look very different for everyone. So I'm not sitting here preaching, you know, you should do exactly what I did because I think every veterinarian has different goals. And your goals are really going to dictate how you should show up with your investments. Because I would be lying to you if I said real estate investing the way I do it is passive because it is not like I'm a very active real estate investor. So, you know, that's time, that's effort, that's money, that's all the things like. So when I started still working full time as a veterinarian, I started buying single family houses and putting basement suites in. So it was like having two I don't want to say full-time jobs. Vet was full-time. Real estate investing is coming on as a side hustle. And I always looked at it a little bit differently from others. A lot of people will wait to the point that they're really desperate to make a change and they'll find something like real estate and they'll say, okay, I'm going to just make this work. And so 
I have to replace $100,000 a year income. This house produces $500 a month in cash flow. So I need 20 houses and now I'm financially free and I can quit my job. I looked at it totally different. I started in 2012 and at that time I had no intention of leaving clinical veterinary practice. Like it wasn't even on the radar. All I knew is I wanted to give myself options in the future. So I bought a house and I viewed it as going to the grocery store and you're at the checkout counter and there's the big conveyor belt. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to put this house on the end of the conveyor belt and I'm not going to even worry about it for 10 years. So in 2012, I buy the house. The mortgage is going to pay down. It's going to produce some cash flow. That's going to stay in the bank account because I don't need the money. I'm working as a vet. I've already got my groceries covered and hopefully it goes up in value. I'm going to worry about all that 10 years down the road in 2022, right? So you fast forward and you get to 2022. Now you're standing there with this, you know, house-shaped piggy bank that has 100, 200, you know, $300,000 of equity in it. Now I have an option, right? I can do something with this. And that's the strategy we executed on. So we bought in 2012. We actually bought, I think, four or five properties that first year. And I just had this visual. If I just keep dropping a property in behind it every year, in 10 years time, I'm going to have the whole playbook of options open to me because I get to take this piggy bank, smash it open, and I have more than one year vet salary sitting there. So I can continue working or I can stop working or I can do whatever I want, right? So that was how I got like started and how I set mine up. Other people may not have nearly as aggressive as goals. That's totally fine, right? You could view this as a retirement plan. So it's going to be there for you in 30 years. On a simpler level, you could do something like house hacking where your goal is just to minimize your living expenses. I'm not sitting here saying you have to do what I did. There's a lot of options. The why. I kind of alluded to it already. The main thing was I wanted to find a way to detach my earning of money and my spending of time, right? Clinical veterinary work, I have to be at the vet clinic to earn money. Whereas real estate, once I had it established, it was doing its thing. I didn't have to be there. So that was number one. Number two was real estate offered a a unique opportunity to create value. So remember the mindset shift that we talked about instead of trading time for money, I started looking at, okay, I can create money based on the value I bring. So I look at real estate where if I can see something that's very undervalued, so I use a stock analogy here because it's easier to understand. If say there's a stock out there that's trading at $100 and there's a stock certificate just sitting in my hands, if someone was to crumple that up, throw it on the ground, it's all dirty and muddy and they stomp on it, that stock certificate still has an intrinsic value of $100. But a lot of people will look at that and be like, ah, it's crumpled up. You know, it's dirty. That thing's only worth $65. I look at that and think, I'll buy that for $65, right? I'll pick it up. I'll dust it off. I'll smooth out the the creases. No problem. That'll cost me $10. So I've spent $75 and it's worth $100, right? That's what I do in real estate. I'm looking for that value add where I can just increase the value quickly, right? The third piece, I know I'm rambling, so I'll wrap it on this fast, is it's a store of value. So if veterinarians were to track their paychecks, right, and how your paychecks are performing, yes, you're getting raises. Yes, there's inflation, but it doesn't keep up, right? Like if you were to put your paycheck increases side by side with the property values, over time, 
typically the property values are running away. And so I looked at that and I was like, man, like I feel like I'm falling behind. But if I can take my money and store it in something that has a bit of inflation protection, and yes, real estate will go up and down. I'm not saying that there's no periods of it going down at all. Just saying over a long enough timeline that helps to hedge against inflation, right? Because inflation erodes the value of your money. And we're in a time right now where inflation is kind of running wild. So this is exceptional. But keep in mind, overall, the target is still 2%, right? Like federal governments have said, like they don't intend for there to be zero inflation. Their goal is 2%. So your money is constantly being inflated away. So I wanted to put it somewhere that helps protect it. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that you're more of an active real estate investor. So why is that? Why did you decide to do more active versus passive real estate? And then can you kind of define passive real estate to make sure everyone's on the same page there? Yes. So the main reason I went active is in 2012, I was at sort of a fork in the road. I was analyzing a veterinary clinic that I was considering purchasing. Like to the point, I had the financial statements, I had signed the NDA, I had hired an independent advisor. And like, we were down to the point of like, okay, a little bit more negotiating. And it's like, are you buying this veterinary clinic? At the same time, me and my wife were looking at rental properties, right? And there was a government grant and I was running those numbers side by side. What it came down to is I had to look at what return was most important to me. And so I will say right now, if you are a veterinarian looking at owning a veterinary clinic, that can be a phenomenal move. So I'm not sitting here saying real estate is better at all. My decision making was what is going to get maybe a better return on my time, like for how I wanted to live, right? And that is where I drifted more over to real estate because it really came down to, I was like, well, I don't really want to have you know a business and whatever it was, 10 or 20 employees, or at least at that stage in my life, I didn't want that. So that was the decision-making that sent me over. And so as an active party, no different than creating the value. I was like, if I put the time in, like real estate is a really inefficient market, right? If I'm walking around looking at properties, looking for the long grass and the unpainted houses, I can just create massive like increases in wealth much faster than I could in the veterinary clinic as an employee, right? Mm -hmm. So that's why I chose to go active. It's also my personality in that if I'm going to do something, I generally go fairly all in, right? I have a saying, it's a bit controversial, but I'll say, you know, diversification is dilution. And I do believe that when you're starting out, and I know financial advisors everywhere are holding their breath now because that's like a swear word to say, but I'm saying that in the context of someone that is just starting out. Right. So if you're starting out as a veterinarian, if you're starting out as a real estate investor or whatever your thing is, you will be best served by becoming the best at it. Right. Become an expert. So if you're like, I'm going to be a veterinarian orthopedic surgeon, excellent. Go all in on it. Right. You're not going to be better as a veterinary orthopedic surgeon by going and studying political science, also just to diversify your education. Diversification is very important down the road right? Like now I'm at a point, I have real estate, I have stock investments, we have private investments. So I always overemphasize this because I'm not telling people do not diversify. But when you're starting out, you have to focus, right? So that's why when I was active, I was like, if I'm being an active investor, I'm just drilling in on it. Passive investing, 
you know, everything costs something to be completely honest. So if you're going to be a passive investor, you will not get the same returns that I got as an active investor because someone has to be doing the work. You know, so if you're a passive investor, this probably looks like you're buying into a REIT, which could be publicly traded. So for those listening, a REIT is just a real estate investment trust. These can be massive companies, right? They can have billions of dollars of real estate. They can trade publicly on the stock exchange. With the click of a mouse, you can go buy a share in that company, but there will be fees attached to that. Someone is managing it. Someone's taking you, and they're not huge fees, but there is. That's a passive investment. So I look at that, you know, you don't have to trade your time other than buying the shares, but after that, you have no obligations. You don't have to trade your energy, right? Because you don't have to make any decisions. The REIT, it's all handled. As an active investor, you're trading your time, you're trading your money probably, and you're trading like your energy because you're making decisions. There's always stuff going wrong that you got to fix. So I don't know, I'll throw it back to you there and see, because I kind of went all over on that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good answer. I think there's also what there's probably something in between the two. Also, right, where you between like active and actually in there in the house fixing things, and a REIT where you're just throwing money in. There's probably something in between too. Yeah, I see a lot of people will team up with other people that have interests in real estate and they'll bring different skill sets. You know, like there's nothing to say the three of us could decide to buy an apartment building together, right? And one of us could manage operations, you know, and one of us might be the best at renovating a unit, right? And we can bring our unique skill sets together and do it that way. And I see that all the time in the real estate space, like a joint venture or a collaboration. Okay. And so where along the sort of financial journey would real estate be a good fit for someone? Yeah. Again, totally depends on their goals. Off the start, if you are a veterinary student, house hacking seems you know like a great fit. That's how I got my start by accident. My parents bought a house. I got to live in one of the bedrooms and their, our sort of handshake agreement was you keep the other bedrooms full and you don't have to pay rent. I didn't even know the term house hacking existed at the time, but I guess I was house hacking. So, you know, that would be something if I had to go back to whatever age I was and be a veterinary student again, for sure, I would house hack. That's stage of life dependent, right? Me and Rosalie with two kids, one of which is five months old, we're not house hacking right now, right? (laughs) It's just, it's just not on the cards right now. So as you get along in your journey, as it progressed for me, I was more active before we had kids. And then once we've had kids, I've even outsourced the property management. This is just time dependent, right? So I would say real estate can fit at all stages of your life. It's just going to look different how you structure it. Okay. Yeah, I like, you know, you mentioned earlier about, you know, if you're going to be a veterinarian, focus on being a veterinarian. But I guess... With that said, you know, another thing about real estate is you can have veterinary real estate, so you can buy into a practice, hopefully you buy into the building as well. You know, what would you say about that? Because not a lot of people I feel like are owning and there's a lot to gain. Yeah. For the classic book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which is a phenomenal book, generally people will read it and the takeaway is buy real estate, right? They'll say some version of that. What the book really says, or my interpretation of it is, have a business that generates cash flow, take that extra cash flow and buy assets with it, such as real estate. 
So your example, Willie, of a veterinarian that owns a veterinary practice that buys the building the veterinary practice is in, fantastic. Like, you know, they will do very well. You have a veterinary business spitting off cash, take the excess cash flow, buy the asset. I mean, this is an accountant and lawyer question. Those are probably structured in different companies and corporations, but whatever. So to that point, I would say yes. And I know a lot of people that have done that and they've done phenomenal. And going back to, you know, talking about veterinarians and real estate. So what resources or advice would you have for a veterinarian who's new to real estate investing and interested in learning more about it? Yeah. Shameless plug, me. I mean, feel free to reach out. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't have any sort of formal like coaching or courses that I offer and I don't think I intend to, but I mean, I love chatting about this. Like that is one of the things that I'm the most passionate about is helping veterinarians get financially free so they can choose how they live their life. Obviously, I don't have endless amounts of free time, so we'll find a spot, but feel free to reach out. Local meetups are going to be a huge value. So in this day and age, no matter where you live in the world, there's probably a local real estate investor meetup. You know, Just get online, get on Google and search one out. They may be a small fee of like 10 bucks to drop in or something. Those are very worth it. You want to get around people that are already doing it, right? That already have, you know, one rental, two rentals, five, whatever it is, because you just start to learn the language. Like it is, it is no different than you can read about how to do a dog spay. You can read the textbook over and over and over and over. It's totally different when you step into the surgery suite and you see someone else make the ventral midline decision. And now there's actually blood, right? It's not just in the textbook saying, make this cut totally different, right? So you have to get in there and see it. I mean, there's lots of good books on the topic, but honestly, nothing replaces that direct mentorship with other people. That's great advice. That is great advice. So I want to dive into a topic that I have heard on your podcast quite a bit and also in other conversations. So you like to talk about goal setting and habits which also happens to be one of Willie's favorite topics as well. So, Mike, what are your favorite tips for effective goal setting? Okay. I asked you before we started how long we're recording for because this question, <laughs> I could like blow apart your timeline here because I could talk like for a day on this. I love it. So I'll boil it down to a few tips. So the first thing with the question is you said effective goal setting. And so I'm going to kind of poke at that a little bit because this is how I view goal setting is what are we going for here when we're setting the goal, right? And I'll see two different things. Sometimes I see people have a tendency to want to go, you know, 10 out of 10 on their goal setting, right? So when you said effective goal setting, they're going to set goals and they're going to think about it. And it's like, ah, oh, that's just a little too high. I'm going to lower that goal because I'm not sure if I'll hit it. At the end of the day, I want to be able to check all the boxes and say, there, I went 100%. So the punchline is they set their goals way too small, right? So when I look at effective goal setting, I completely break it apart. Macro level, this is your big five-year vision, your 10-year vision. What do you want your life to look like? In my opinion, those goals should be transformational. When you set them, you should pucker up because you're like, there's no way I'm hitting that right? Because what's the point of setting something that's right in front of you, right? The biggest danger there is that you set a goal that you actually hit. That's the biggest danger, right? I kind of work off of a framework 
And I am going to be doing like a goal setting virtual workshop sometime near the end of 2023, just to sort of beta test this because I love talking about it. And I use the framework of VET, right? So your vision and then your tactics. And then in the middle of that is your environment that sandwiches in. And when you're casting that vision, I'm of the opinion you have to bend how you think, right? So as I mentioned, I have a five month old right now. He can't imagine that one day he will be able to walk if he had these kind of conscious thoughts. But we know someday he'll get there. We expect transformational change to happen in a baby, right? He's going to go through the phases of life and he's going to completely transform. For some reason, we get to a point in adulthood where we're very comfortable accepting no more transformation. It's just status quo. I will never make another big leap forward. So, macro. Effective goal setting, in my opinion, you should not hit all your goals. They should be so big that you miss on some of them, but even missing on them, you're still so far ahead of where you started. So that's side A. Side B is now we drill down to daily habits. There's a lot of steps in between that, but that's the habits. That's where you want your goals to be so simple or silly. Like on those, you should be going 10 out of 10 every day, right? Like, just micro habits on a daily basis. So I really break it out to the two extremes. These are the simplest goals I can set. These are the most extreme goals I can set. And then you focus on the daily. Every once in a while, when you look up, you're like, okay, I'm closer to those big goals. I think a lot of people make a mistake of setting goals right in the middle, right? Where it's like, it doesn't really move the needle, but it's too big to do on a daily basis. So that would be some of, I guess, my favorite tips I don't know if that was a tip, but that's how I would approach your goal setting. I love it. <laughs> yeah, I'm so curious, Willie. I want to hear your feedback because I know you're a big fan of this subject. So your whole aspect on the macro level, I'm conflicted with that one because my wife is doing a residency right now. I did an internship residency. So unfortunately, on a macro level, we haven't been able to plan for the next two, three, five years because we just don't know where we're going to be. But on a micro level, I journal every day and there's three goals that I have to achieve every day. And like you said, 10 out of 10, I usually achieve them and they're usually pretty basic. But I wake up and I think, oh man, I have to do this. Or I actually went to bed thinking I need to do this. So in the morning, I just write it down to make sure that I complete that. So yeah, but no, your advice is awesome. Well, thank you. I really do love diving into it. And it doesn't mean I have it figured out. Like I'm not sitting here saying like (laughs) my way is the only way, but I kick this around a lot. I read all the books on these topics and it's constantly evolving. Like I've changed my whole goal setting process many times. So this is just where I'm currently at. Yeah, I love it too. I love that you're talking about the macro goals and saying, hey, set these what do they call them? BHAG, big, big, hairy, audacious goals, right? Yeah. Set those big goals. And even if you don't hit them, you're going to be closer than you would have been if you hadn't taken the time to say, hey, this is something I would like to do. Yeah. I'm in a mastermind group. We meet every Monday and every quarter we pick a topic for the whole quarter. So for three months, we just beat up on that topic. And this quarter, we just finished wrapping up the book, 10X is Easier Than 2X. So it's all about like transformational thinking. And the big thing there is when you set a goal that is just so big, you can't even see it. There's very few options for hitting it, right? If all of us were to just set a really easy goal, 
of, you know, I'm going to make whatever, 5% more income this year. There's a hundred, there's a thousand ways to do that. So you don't really have to change. You just do more of what you've already done, right? And which goes exactly to the, one of the things I was ranting about earlier here is we're already doing too much, but we're going to set a goal where the answer to achieving that goal is do a little more. So we're just going to be more overwhelmed. So it's like, it's very counterintuitive, but if we set this 10X goal that is just so big, we can't even see it. The answer to achieving it is we're actually going to have to do less. We're going to have to look at our plate and be like, that's got to go. This has got to go. That's got to go. We're actually going to free up way more space and get further ahead. It's a really like, I don't want to say confusing, but it does mess with you because that means you have to let go of a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. It's way harder to let something go than to just say, yep, put it on my plate. I'll handle it. Yeah, it's a mind game. Yeah, I get fired up. I feel like I'm shouting at you guys. <laughs> You're shouting a little bit, but it's fine. <laughs> I, I... <laughs> it's great. <laughs> I really enjoy the word transformational because that is something that you have to think about and say, huh, have I ever thought of doing something transformational? And for me, you know, I mentioned I may not have much macro goals, but I tell people in five years when I turn 40, I'm hoping to be work optional, meaning that I have enough investments that make up for the salary or at least the spending that I have. And we'll see. We'll see if that happens. That is transformational. A lot of people, that goal isn't until 65 or whatever traditional retirement age is. Like you're 20 to 25 years ahead of that. Like, I don't know. I would say that is a great transformational goal. Yeah. Thank you. So you mentioned you would be happy to talk to people about real estate. So what's the best way for our colleagues to get in touch with you? Yeah. So if you want to find me personally, I finally do have a website. Thanks to our friends at Whisker Cloud, I guess, finally got something up. So just michaelbug.com. As you guys mentioned, I also host a podcast. It's The Veterinary Project. You can find us there just www.theveterinaryproject.com. And both of those social media, feel free to message. Probably Instagram is your best chance. Full disclosure, I'm horrible at responding to DMs because they just slip through. But go to the websites and there'll be a contact form on either of them and that gets through to us. All right. And they can also contact you to talk about goal setting because you get pretty fired up about that, right? Yeah, I do. You know, what's funny is the workshop that I'm doing At the end of 2023, I haven't made it yet. Like I know what's (laughs) roughly going to be in there. And I've always wanted to do something like this. And so it's the classic saying, like, if you want to clean your house, just invite someone over for dinner. Right. And it's like, there we go. That's the date. So I put it out there. Even with the launch of my book, I'm doing kind of some bonus giveaways. And so one of them is like a ticket to that virtual workshop. So The virtual Mm -hmm. workshop will happen. It will be ready later in 2023. Just it's not ready yet. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll definitely put in the show notes a link to the website for your book. And I've thumbed through it, but I haven't read it yet. And so I'm really excited to dive into that in more detail. And so, Mike, that brings us to our last question. What is your best advice for our listeners? Yeah, I knew this one was coming. I was trying to give some thought. I want to keep it like financial related because you guys are Vet Financial Summit. This isn't super profound, but I feel like it's just a good reminder. There's two things that are going to affect your life, whether you pay attention to them or not, right? And that's health and money. 
So we can't just bury our head in the sands and hope that they go away. And I understand money can be emotional and I understand it can be uncomfortable. Like I totally sympathize. I have compassion with that. But there is a way you can start getting in those conversations. So I would just encourage everyone, get in those money conversations, shift it from unconscious to conscious, right? We just heard Willie say he's going to be work optional in five years by the time he's 40. And like, just stop and think about that for a second for everyone that's listening. Like imagine if just by, you know, putting some serious focus into your money mindset, your money habits, your money investing five years from now, and let's just even say things go wrong and it's 10 years from now, who cares? But 10 years from now, work optional, like you get to choose how you spend your time. Like, how does that feel? Like to me, that just like, it's the best feeling in the world when you have that full freedom of time. So that would be my thing is I just encouraging everyone to shift their thinking and get conscious about their money. All right. Excellent advice. So Mike, congratulations on the new book and always great to talk with you. And thanks so much for joining us. Yeah. Thanks, Meredith. Thanks, Willie. Thanks for having me. Thank you. If you like this episode, click the follow or subscribe button. Until next time, take care and continue your path to financial success. The information provided in this podcast is for informational purposes only. It should not be considered legal or financial advice. Consult with a legal or financial professional before making any investment decisions.